This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication, which is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Frank Pape. He is the chairman of the Dermatology and Plastic Surgery Institute at the Cleveland Clinic Health System. He also is a physician who is an innovator. He has spearheaded the Cleveland Clinic's work in face transplants and is the holder of over 40 medical device patents. He was inducted into the National Academy of Inventors in 2017. We talk about how medical science and innovation intersect and about the humanistic side of medicine today. Doctor, you have done so many amazing things in in your profession um, let's let's start off with the uh, face transplant as I understand it the first one was done in uh, in 2005 in France is that right 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 and and then um, coming over to the United States first one was done in in 2008 yep right. so this is this is a very new procedure, I take it, uh, from not many of them been done. No, I think worldwide, we're, we're pushing 40 now. Um, but it's, it's basically still an experimental surgery. And it's probably one of the most complex technical wows in surgery at this point. Um, and, um, and we're still learning. We're learning quite a bit for each one that we do. Uh, we weren't the first in the world. We were the first in the United States and North America to perform a face transplant. We're the first ones in the world to get permission to do a face transplant. And we have the longest living face transplant in the world. Uh, uh, the first one 10 years ago, her name is Connie Kalp. And uh, she's doing fairly well. She's doing well 10 years after her face transplant, living a good life, uh, living a social life. And uh, uh, I think she's engaged. I think she's dating and engaged. So uh, she's really uh, come around. She's the greatest spokes spokesperson on earth for um, against narcissism <laughs> uh, and, uh, and really, uh, really defined for us. In, in many different aspects of, of the ethical question, uh, why do a face transplant? So she defines us really, what is the value and what is the function of a face? And for our audience out there who may wonder, why Cleveland Clinic? You, you sort of had a, an aligning of the stars, right? You right. had the right people at the right place at the right time. You got it. You know, that's absolutely right. You know, it's a team. It's a team approach, much like a rocket launch or anything else. It's not one particular individual. Uh, the person, though, that has to get really deserve most of the credit for all the years of research is Dr. Marie Seminoff. Uh, who uh, I knew a little bit in the University of Utah, but we were able to hire her at the Cleveland Clinic. And she is a PhD, actually an orthopedic surgeon, and did a lot of research on what we call composite tissue allografts. That's taking multiple different types of tissue, skin, uh, nerves, muscle, bone, and transplanting that. She did literally dozens and dozens of papers uh, on rodents, 
and was able to prove experimentally in animals that this was a, a potential way to reconstruct difficult situations like in somebody who's lost their face uh, in this play in this time with either a gunshot wound or or war victims from at this time the Iraq war uh, or at that time. So, um, so when I became chairman of the Institute at the Cleveland Clinic of Dermatology and Plastic Surgery, um, I gave her the go. I said, let's do this. I mean, there's high risk to this. I think this is something that we're kind of stuck, uh, not being able to reconstruct a face with the capabilities that we had with uh, the new advances in surgical techniques. And this would actually take us to the next level where we could actually reconstruct a face uh, to its fullest capability. Um, and I mean, not just socially, but functionally. Right. So again, that begs the question again, what is a face? Uh, and, and I think uh, the face transplants that we have performed recently have told us that you know, the face is really the conduit to the brain. It's the input and output of the brain. Without a face, you're, you're basically cloistered in, uh, from society you basically can't see, can't smell, can't communicate, can't perform the most complex thing that any beast on earth does, and that's speech and communication, in addition to hearing, uh, flavor, smell, whatever. And there's nuances to a face that actually communicates even more than speech and, and vision. It's a visceral feeling. Like when I see your face and you see my face, that, that you get a feeling about what this person has with the little nuances of the face. Uh, the little twitches and the way the muscles move and the way the muscles are expressed. So that actually has been shown to viscerally, hormonally change things. Uh, and we see that when we fall in love with somebody or the beauty of somebody that we see or the care in a mother's eyes or whatever. There's things that we still don't understand uh, that is expressed in a communicative, uh, communicative effort through the face. And many of those things are involuntary and, and uh, they just are. Yeah. Uh, I know I spent a number of years both as a judge and a trial lawyer, and I would read people's faces all the time. Right. And not necessarily their voluntary expressions, but their involuntary. Exactly. And involuntary is a great way of putting it because there's things that we can hold back as actors. We can be trained to do things. But some things, no matter what, especially if it really connects with you emotionally, it's, it's very, very difficult to mask. And, and so, you know, how somebody shows um, – uh, to be indignant or to be, mm -hmm. you know, arrogant or whatever. You can read people or to be sincere and authentic. You know, you, there's little nuances that you pick up that we can't really define. Uh, and it's still, I'm, I, I'm a student of that and I still haven't gotten it right. Your selection of a team, uh, this, this has to be an amazing process that you go t through. You get the best of the best in many different areas of medicine to do this. Right, right. And, and that's the complexity, uh, not only in, in doing the technical aspects of, of a face transplant, but the team, the complexity of getting uh, a multidisciplinary team uh, from nursing to psychiatry to law to right. ethics to to the surgeons, um, and, and every aspect of that team is as equally important as the other. So I'm certainly not a virtuoso. You know, I, I'm, I consider myself more of uh, being a conductor, and I'm probably not even that good. But, but I think what I've learned is collectively 
as a team, the power of the team and the, collect, uh, the collaborative genius of the team really can take us to the next level to, to do things we couldn't even dream of before, and at least in medicine, uh, such as, as a face transplant or what we're looking at now uh, with different ways to modulate nerves of the face and the skull base. So um, yeah, it's the collective manner and how you align incentives for the team uh, to do something greater than each individual of the team. The the whole is greater than the parts. <laughs> yeah, in short, yeah, you're right. You're right. But it's how you how do you create the whole is is again, I'm a student of that and and it's a very difficult thing to do sometimes. I know we can't get into because we would be here forever uh, translating the technique yeah. that you go through in in doing that, but I'd rather spend our time looking at some of the human aspects of 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 face transplants and other things that you've done in medicine. How do you judge whether a person who is to receive a new face is the right person? That's a I great ass- question. I assume not everybody would fit that category. You're absolutely right. Well, uh, you, know, you being a former judge would probably know this. A lot has to deal with the verification of understanding. And how do I know with informed consent that this particular person understands the risks, the, the, the pain, the, the process, and the postoperative uh, deal for the rest of their life they're going to go through? So, you know, we do, uh, we perform informed consent, but certainly the verification of understanding that informed consent to me is incredibly important, not just of the patient, but the loved ones that surround the patient. Because in, in these complex surgeries, you're really not just operating on one individual, but really you're operating on their family too. And so they, the shared decision-making to me is very important to document, very important to verify, not just the patient's understanding, but those that they trust around them. And then there's the, um, the process of, again, those individuals that are participating in this and why they want to do this. Um, for our end, on the surgeon's end, uh, we have a protocol to say, uh, well, we've reached the end of our standard of care or our state-of-the-art care, I should say, in, in reconstructing this face. We can't do anything better. And so, uh, so that is, is one aspect of uh, deciding. The other decision-making for a patient that deserves a face transplant is, is do, can they follow up after surgery for a lifetime of immune suppression medications? Uh, can they see well enough to do that on their own, or do they need help of others? Do they have a great uh, psychosocial support mechanism uh, for the rest of their life to do this? And then there's also, obviously, there's the economics of it. Uh, we were lucky to have uh, the Department of Defense support uh, with a large grant called the AFIRM grant, uh, our face transplants um, uh, from the Defense Department. But, you know, to sustain that for the rest of these patients' life and how we're going to do that, uh, there's also a social economic component of this, too. So with all that involved, you know, then we make a decision. The decision is not one person making the decision. It's a group decision um, through the psychiatrist, the lawyers, uh, the bioethicist, uh, the surgeons. You know, it's a, it's a team decision that we, we make to go ahead or not go ahead. And in all of that, I assume one of the integral parts is a psychological profile mm-hmm. of the patient, uh, not just the mechanics of all of it and understanding all of it, but are they psychologically equipped to have a new face? Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. And, and and again, that deals with the verification of understanding of what they know, what they're getting into. That goes along with um, sort of the psychology of their expectations. Uh, why are they doing this? What, what's the reasons behind this? And, and I would say 99% of the patients, at least the reason why they want to do this and undertake this, are very valid, very valid. And um, uh, I, I still, you know, go back to the verification of understanding and, and, and how important that is because a lot of these patients have psychotrauma, you know, for having a, a shotgun blast to the right. face or depression that they attempted to commit suicide or whatever. So we have to be as assured as we can uh, as a team to make sure that they are at a level of uh, psychological stability. Uh, they, they have a, law, a level of cognitive understanding. Uh, and then we have to understand that they understand uh, that uh, the process that they're going to undertake. So let's go to the other party then, the, the party, the organ donor or the, yes. the face donor. Um, some of them have relatives. Uh, yes. And, you know, this isn't like moving a heart where nobody sees it exactly uh, or another body part this is something that's visible yes what do you do with them how do you approach them well you know it's certainly the family it's again a shared decision making with the loved ones that have the, the legal capability to make a decision for them i mean most people sign off in their license that, sure. that i will donate but nobody knows that, that the process that we go through to ask somebody for uh, a hand or a face or composite tissue allograph. So that takes it to multiple levels beyond that where we actually have to take the legal responsibility and asking the next of kin, the loved one that has that legal responsibility, if that's okay. Uh, and that's what we did, and we have to obviously document that. And we have to, again, just like the verification sure. of understanding of the patient uh, who's the recipient, also the verification of understanding of those loved ones that have that legal responsibility or understand what they're undertaking. Now, what you say about is the face um, of one person onto another person, uh, how identifiable is that from the donor? We've done some cadaver studies where we've taken the face of one cadaver and put it on the face of another cadaver, kind of uh, switching them, and shown that y you really can't tell the difference. It ends up not being from the donor. It ends up not being the recipient face. It ends up being a new face, a because matrix. Because of the bone structure and, and everything that underlies the, the skin? is that Exactly. Okay. You know, that's part of it, but you're absolutely right. That, that is the, probably the major part of it. And so you know, we've shown that, at least in this cadaver study, that that's the case. Uh, but again, you don't know that. And we have to also kind of change the perception of society that's looking at movies uh, like Face Off with Nicolas right, Cage and, right. and, and, and uh, Travolta. And, and it's not like that. No. Uh, it's very, very different than that. But it's a great question. Uh, it, and it also depends on how much the face you're going to transplant. So the more of the face and more of the bone structure, then that spectrum moves into more of a recognizable face from the donor. The less of that you do, obviously, the less of that you, you can um, see the other uh, parts of the donor into the uh, recipient. I would assume that if the new face is identifiable in, in some ways, or even if it's not, the next of kin of the donor might have some connection to, to the recipient. Is that something that 
is monitored or is that something that's just evolving? It's just evolving. You're absolutely right. It's just evolving. As a matter of fact, in this um, series that was followed, our last face transplant by National Geographic, right. it's one of the rare times where the donor family and the recipient family together met. And, and those persons that made that decision of the donor uh, giving a face to the recipient met and, and have a social relationship now. So, you know, there's not too many of, of those situations. So, you know, I can't say one way or the other how that works out and if there's some type of connection. I can tell you from the recipient side, the family that receives the face, there's an incredible amount of thankfulness and gratefulness about what the families do, no matter what you donate. Uh, the fact that you're donating a piece of your body at the time of your death is an incredible amount of giving, probably more so than any other human being can possibly do to another. We can give money, we can give our clothes off our backs, whatever, but when you give a, an organ, a heart, a liver, a kidney, a face, an arm, um, it's an incredible um, humbling experience for a surgeon to see that happen. And one of the iconic pictures in the National Geographic is, is to see all the surgeons looking down at that face. Right. And, in, and you can almost sense the, the, uh, the period of, of silence and awe at that time. And it's very humbling. It's, uh, it's almost tearful. Uh, and, but you have, to, you have to realize what this person was and now is that parts of that person are going elsewhere to incredibly help another individual, another human uh, to live a life. Uh, I can't say any more than it's incredibly humbling. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders. These leaders will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research on communication concepts, issues, and problems. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provides benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Again, we don't need to get into all the mechanics, but it, this process is a long process, 31 hours or approximately on, on some of them, uh, you know, a team of physicians, but you have to attach blood vessels and nerves, and it's not just sewing something on. I, I don't mean to be graphic, but it's it's an intensely intricate process. You, you're, you're absolutely right. I compare it much like we talked before about a rocket launch. Yeah. It's, it's much like a rocket launch. There's go, no-go situations. 
there's the go no go of the the patient the recipient who's going to get a face because there's been trauma to that face of one one way or another and there's been multiple surgeries on the face and scarring and obliteration of blood vessels and nerves so there's a go no go should we proceed and then there's the go no go of the donor and and you know do they have heart disease that has destroyed the tissue do they have atherosclerosis and blood vessels that can't be transplanted are the nerves okay even what is there any sign of sinusitis or infection of the face that once you you transfer that over to the recipient and the recipient is on immune suppression drugs are you going to uh, start a fire of infection so all those play back and forth so on that side there's a go no go and then at the end, when we tie the little blood vessels together, um, we, we really garner the expertise of other surgeons, okay? So I'm a craniofacial surgeon. I deal with sort of the, uh, the architecture of the face. The microvascular surgeons are the surgeons that tie the tiny little blood vessels together. Uh, and so we bring in all these different types of surgeons that have different special, highly specialized techniques that we utilize, and hence the team approach. But the, the go, no-go situation that is probably the most anxiety, uh, you know, sort of driven part of the surgery is after we attach those little blood vessels and release those clamps, the, the face, which is a cadaveric pale white, uh, lights up like a pink, uh, like, a, like a light bulb, a Christmas light bulb. And you can almost in the room hear the collective sigh of, oh, okay, we're we're over this huge hurdle right now. We can relax a little bit. Uh, so um, that's a point of anxiety, but of an intense gratification afterwards once you release those blood vessels and you actually see the, the blood go back in the face and light up that face like a light bulb. You've indicated a few of these have been done. Uh, I assume every time one is done, something's learned, mm -hmm. something's new because you're on the cutting edge uh, of medicine. Sort of project for us, doctor, where, where will this be maybe 10 years from now or, or 20 years from now? Right. Well, I think we've proven surgically that the technique of uh, transferring a face or an arm or a leg or in multiple parts of the body that are made up of composite tissues um, is done. We're there. We've done that. And there's going to be future refinements of the surgical technique. Really the holy grail, uh, the, the magic sauce that we need to find is really how can we uh, control the immune system where the immune system is controlled enough to accept somebody else's organ or composite tissues on one hand, but on the other hand, not cause all the severe side effects in the lifetime of that patient. And I mean diabetes, um, infection, uh, multiples, cancers that, that can come out. Uh, we now have the longest living face transplant in the world with Connie Kalp. The first face transplant from France died uh, of a cancer because she was so immunosuppressed. So, so that to me is the next big thing. It, and that's, that is the biggest hurdle of this. Technically, we're done with surgery, and, and we can do this again and again and again. But if we can find that secret sauce to control the immune uh, system well enough to allow somebody else to accept the tissues with all the other bad things, all the other side effects, um, then I think you're going to see more and more of this. I, I Forgive me because I don't know the right term to use, so, so bear with me. But it seems, looking over your career, doctor, that you have been entrepreneurial in medicine. I don't know whether that's an appropriate term. I don't want to say experimental because that sounds like you're 
just out there doing whatever you wish. But you've always sort of been on the cutting edge looking for new devices, new procedures, new ways of, of doing something. Not all physicians are like that. What, what makes you like that? That's a good question. Uh, you know, I would say it's a bit of my father who's a tinkerer. Uh, it's a bit of my mother in, in my family that has the art component of it. So there's a right and left brain parts of this. So before I went into medicine, I was a biomedical engineer. And, and you know, again, worked for NASA for a little bit. I uh, was sort of an intern there for their earth applications department. And, uh, and a bit of that uh, sense of awe uh, drives my passion. Uh, um, and I like to say I'm childlike, not childish, <laughs> and, 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 and that sense of awe. Uh, but no matter what it is in science, I'm, I'm reading, um, you know, a book on, on, you know, short answers to big questions uh, yeah. and, and by Stephen Hawking. And, and his sense of awe uh, is contagious. And there are certain people in my life here at Ohio University and others thereafter when I worked at NASA and, and others that by, by serendipity I end up de developing a relationship and meeting with. I call it the Forrest Gump effect. You know, Forrest Gump had these incredible things that happened in his life. And if you really look in the movie, uh, it was because he was childlike, had Correct. great relationships with these individuals early in his life his mother, um, Lieutenant Dan, uh, Bubba, or whatever, that affected his life by incredible circumstances down the road. So I call that the Forrest Gump effect. And in my life, I've met individuals uh, like um, Dean Kamen that I learned from, who's I think one of the greatest inventors uh, of our era, uh, the Thomas Alva Edison of, of this era. Uh, Dean uh, um, uh, Bruce Banks, who was my boss at, at NASA, who was probably one of the better inventors were at NASA at that time. Um, um, you know, Rush Elliott, when I was a, a student here at Ohio University in, in, in comparative anatomy, uh, I, I had to make money to go through school, so I ended up painting his house in the summer. <laughs> I had a little side company called College Tradesman's Company, and it was getting to know him personally in his servant leadership and his command of perfection. Uh, that drove me. So it was these Forrest Gump relationships by serendipity uh, that I, I picked up on and, and said, well, I want to be like him or I want to be like her and trying on the clothes of those individuals, their personalities to see if they fit me and felt good. And some didn't feel good and some did feel good. And so I incorporated parts of them in me and hopefully that's their legacy and hopefully I can do that to other individuals and that'll be hopefully my legacy. Comedians that I've talked to over the years look at the world a little differently. Yeah. <laughs> and and they see things that may seem may be ordinary, but they can make humor out of them. It seems to me that you look at medicine a little bit differently than many of your colleagues. And you see things and go, well, why can't we do that? What what's what's keeping us from doing that? Is is that a correct characterization? Well, I, I divide medicine, it, most people in medicine, uh, at least the physician side, into proceduralists that do things to people, surgery, you know, techniques, and then the cognitives that, that study the diagnostic end of things, and then they treat them with some other thing very quickly. And so, you know, looking on both sides, one is a right-sided brain, one's a left-sided brain, again. 
And and I would say the way I look at things is is what I don't want to be a proceduralist and doing the same thing over and over and over again. Then I end up just being a technician, you know. And on the other hand, I don't want to be too obsessive compulsive and go over the problem and 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 micromanage it down and down and down and sort of mine it. Uh, and then that's sort of on the cognitive end. I always say I have the bad disease of, of having maybe adult attention deficit disorder <laughs> combined with obsessive compulsiveness where um, I want it to be perfect, but I don't have enough time for it. You know, I sort of share that. I understand. That. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so I would say uh, it's, again, getting back to what drives my uh, sense of awe, childlike awe. Uh, is sort of newness and, and can we do better and what legacy I, I can leave behind. Certainly when I perform um, surgery on children that have, let's say, cleft lip and palate and they have, have that or some orbital or cranial deformity, uh, you know, that sense of delayed gratification that I don't have is satisfied immediately at the end of the surgery, okay? And so that helps my, my sort of that poor sense of delayed gratification helps my attention deficit disorder. Right. But that, that sense of newness is also important too and in, in how collectively I can bring others to satisfy that um, is the other part of me, I guess. I, I think it's a personality trait or a flaw. I don't know. No, I think it's a personality trait. Yeah. What walk us through, if you would, uh, your uh, migraine headache device and and sure. how that came about. Sort of share with us your thinking and your process. Yeah. Well, actually, that's one of the Forrest Gump effects, where okay. where where as a a surgeon that works around the skull and the skull base, a neurosurgeon came up to me one day and said, "Listen, we have this idea." that actually was from a Persian surgeon who lived in Las Vegas, of all places, came and talked to this neurosurgeon that I know who I operated with in the past, a functional neurosurgeon. And he said, well, he said, oh, Frank, how can we approach this one bundle of cells at the skull base? Because we think there's a theory that if we manipulate those, these cells electrically by overstimulating them, we may be able to control some of the pain that emanates around the brain which is the dura, uh, uh, and, and control migraine headaches. So I said, sure. So I studied that and, and went back the, again to my anatomy days at OU and, and designed an approach to it, designed, helped them design some ways of getting there and in different, in different electrodes. And sure enough, it worked. I mean, it worked, and we did some experiments on uh, some patients at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, we were able to go into Europe and, and, and start this company, uh, which is now in Silicon Valley. We're all in new technologies, it's it's sort of kind of like the um, you know how they're the graveyard of elephants somewhere. Where that's probably where all new technologies go to yeah. too. So it, um, it it's very successful in a subset of migraine headaches called cluster headaches, which is also nicknamed the suicide headaches, and it's effective around eighty to ninety percent of the time. Chronic migraine headaches and and episodic migraine headaches, it's not as effective, but we're working on that project too. So again, again, the Forrest Gump effect, if it wasn't for me meeting this neurosurgeon and having a relationship with this neurosurgeon, that new device and, and surgical approach would not exist. And from that, it begets another device that we're working on, um, which is for sleep apnea. So, you know, 8% uh, uh, of the population uh, has sleep apnea, more in men than women. And with the rising rate of obesity in the United States and the population becoming more elderly in the population uh, in the United States, it's also increasing sleep apnea. So this device 
is adopted from that device. One begets the other. And we're actually uh, neuromodulating uh, a nerve out of, again, the neck called the hypoglossal nerve to bring your tongue forward so you don't obstruct it. And so we're doing some experiments on that right now. Which would eliminate all the masks and, You've got and, it. and all of the contraption for for night for people who have sleep apnea. Which, which has a poor uh, compliance issue. I mean, it's- Poor th- compliance, uh, some uh, germ and bacteria issues. It's got several issues, correct? You, you know exactly what, you must have- uh, No, I don't. Sleep <laughs> because you know exactly. <laughs> but but, but yeah. I know some people who have. Yeah, yeah, and those are big issues. And uh, so how can we um, almost make it uh, um, sort of transparent where we can control your sleep apnea without you even knowing. And we can turn on a little device that you can't see, feel, or touch when you're asleep without really any surgical approach that may be so easy to put in that even a dentist can put in uh, 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 rather than a surgeon put it in. And so, you know, that's our goal to do that and, and to make it where you don't have to think about it, that it will happen on itself. One last area I want to talk to you about, and, and that is um, what we outside of the medical profession would call mentoring. I don't know what you call it in, in the medical profession, but uh, you're in the autumn of your professional life. Certainly haven't hit winter yet, but what do you do when you look at what's coming up? Do you do you have a special interest in looking at young doctors that are coming along and, and try to be their Forrest Gump moment? Exactly. Um, that's a great question. I like to think I'm in August or late July. There you, know, you go. All right. Not, late, not October or November. Late, late summer. How's exactly. That? <laughs> okay. I, that's, that's better. I'll take that. All right. So I would say, um, you know, you have to think about, you know, the average person lives around 85 years of age right now and then increasing the – but the – push of the lifespan limit would be 120. So, you know, in that short period of time here on earth, you know, what do you want to leave behind? Okay. And so there's the legacy aspect, but what do you want to leave behind that will propagate and sustain through generations? Uh, and so that's how the invention part comes, because I think you, you can have impact much greater than your lifetime. Uh, but also teaching students. Um, we have a genetic impact when we have children, uh, but we also have an intellectual impact when we teach students. My, my uh, Forrest Gump moment and my impact came from Rush Elliott here at OU. My impact to the students thereafter is for me to be the Rush Elliott for them, okay, the, the Professor Elliott for them. So the way to do that is, is to be authentic to them, to be honest with them, um, to really help them to be better than me and, and, and not to hold that back. And, you know, I don't think I'm as good as I can get, but I'm sure I can help somebody get better than what I am at. And so um, a lot of that is, is uh, awareness of myself, introspection in myself, helping others to have introspection within themselves and help them guide them through the experience, the history that I've had um, about the, the, the three different intelligences that you need to do um, to become successful or create impact uh, in your lifetime, which is not just intellectual intelligence, but not just emotional intelligence, but in my lifetime, the most effective was social intelligence. And so that social capital that I've built in, in producing this collective action, uh, this collaborative genius, hopefully I can help them teach them that, that can guide them into greater things than I ever did. 
feels really good when you see one of them come along or a group of them come along. Yeah, after I call it, yeah, and plus I learned from them. I call it reverse mentoring. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that's I mean, right. yeah, I learned from them, and I, I, I uh, almost like a vampire, I consume their energy and consume their excitement and their childlike. Um, you know, that's why I'm in July rather than October. There you go. Exactly. And I consume their, their uh, passion. And, and when I see them get passionate and excited about something, you know, it's contagious. Um, and, and that helps me reinvigorate and, and to find out exactly how I should live my life, too. So it's reverse mentorship, too. Doctor, thanks so much for talking with us and sharing your life with us. It's been fascinating. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. Today, we've been talking with Dr. Frank Pepe, the chairman of Dermatology and Plastic Surgery Institute at the Cleveland Clinic, about face transplants and the intersection of medicine and innovation. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Also, WOUB Public Media has launched a brand new podcast called Lifespan. On Lifespan, you'll hear stories about encounters with the healthcare system. Each show contains stories bound by a common theme, a person's personal journey through a particular type of medical trauma. Subscribe to this new podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or at NPR One.